Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with John O'Donovan. He is head tutor in the School of History at University College Cork. We'll be discussing his newly published book, An Introduction to the Irish Civil War, published in Dublin by Mercier Press 2022. John, it is my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you very much, Ali, uh, Ari, and I'm delighted to be to be to be talking with you. And um, from a very hot and steamy car. So, <laughs> to begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you are today? Yeah. So, so I grew up in. So I was born in in, in Cork City. Um, but I grew up in a little village called Lep, which is about fifty miles southwest of of Cork City on the on the southern coast of Ireland. For for, for people who for people who know that, um, in the region of West Cork. Um, I think when I whenever I'm asked where I'm from, I just say West Cork, and then people say, "Okay, where in West Cork?" And then I say, "Oh yeah," and then they go, "Oh, okay, I know where that's." But um, but yeah, so. So when I was, I'm from a, I'm the eldest of family five, um, and I think when I was growing up, I think I was I was very close to to two of my grandparents, um, who were kind of, I suppose, inveterate amateur genealogists. When, when when they would get together, they would talk about this relation and that relation and making connections between cousins and so on and so forth. Yes, I think I think by a process of all losses really i think i think i got interested in you know people in the past and how they lived and you know etc um and then when i when i started like formal schooling um and as i as i continued on into into from primary from the primary system in ireland into the secondary system i found that i you know found that i had an interest and a a liking of it and um I think a lot of people says, "Oh, you're you're actually quite good at this." And I'm going, "Oh, okay." <laughs> so when I came to when I came to 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 go to college um, here, actually in 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 UCC, um, history was one of the first subjects that I chose, um, and I kept I kept it on and on, um, and as I was saying to you before we we started recording, I'm in the in the in the concluding throes of my PhD. Mm. History, so so I've been pretty much, you know, pretty much, you know, have been a kind of a, I suppose, an amateur historian and now a semi-professional historian uh, most of my life. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? Yeah, so I think you know, it, was, it was just trying to get the dates right now. I think it was it was mid twenty nine. It was yeah, it was mid twenty nineteen. I was approached by. Um, a colleague of mine here in the in the school of history, Gabriel Doherty, and Gabriel works 
um, has a kind of a, a one of his one of his his, his jobs is a he's a commissioning editor for Mercier Press and um, for for various series that 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 Mercier published, and he he asked me was I interested in in in, in meeting with them and talking to them. Um, they were looking for someone to write a short book on the Irish Civil War um, as a kind of an introductory text for for people who didn't know too much about did did not too much about the the subject. So I said yes. So I met with I met with um, Mary Fian, who's the head of Mercier, and we had a long chat. Um, and we didn't we we found we had much in common, and then we started talking about how we'd go through the book and what we'd touch on. And then it was back and forth by email over a couple of months. And then eventually I was into contract and I signed the contract and I started researching. I started researching and writing the book. And I think a lot of you know, what Mercier were looking for is what was an introductory text. And the reason was because here in Ireland, uh, we, we, we've gone through over the past 10 years, we've gone through what was called the Decade of Centenaries. And this was a program that the Irish government launched um, in around 2010 um, because there was a number of centenary events, of major events um, in Irish history coming up between the period 2012 to, to 2023. And they wanted to kind of commemorate these and kind of um, acknowledge that these events took place and you know, produce funding and you know, fund various um, programs and fund various initiatives that would kind of dig deep into in, into the history of this. And it 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 has been it has been more or less a success. Though there are a lot of critics of of of, of the of the entire um, decade program, but I think from 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 the general public's perspective, it has been it has been a a huge success in that many documentaries, books, um, newspaper supplements, and a huge array of other cultural and and um, events, and you know not just the written word, but the spoken word, and music, theater, and you know film, and all sorts of um, artifacts, if you will, have been produced. Um, as part of this decade, this centenaries program. But the problem with all that is that you have a rush of material um, washing over people that doesn't really, you know, that some people can't kind of get to grips with without knowing the basics of what we've done. Um, so you have, you have this tension between people wanting to explain this event or that event and people are going, well, what actually happened in the event first? So I think that's what that's what Mercier were looking for, that they knew that the um the coming centenary of the Irish Civil War in twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three um was going to be quite controversial. And um, if if we have time later we 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 I'll I'll delve into that a little bit more. Um but they wanted a, basically a primer um for people to kind of understand what went on um, during it, um, and then they could kind of go and look at well, why did it happen? I think that's I think that's that's pretty much how the book how the book came about. Um, so I 
basically went away, read several books um, on the topic, took copious amounts of notes, um, and then attempted to put a kind of a, a narrative structure on on the events. Um, and I think the first the first two first three chapters, yeah, the, the first two chapters are are kind of a narrative of what went on. Um, countrywide, I was very conscious that previous histories of the Civil War had tended to focus on certain areas um, to the kind of exclusion of others. So I was very conscious about balancing geography as well as as well as in the narrative, looking at looking at areas that hadn't been previously um, talked about in a general history of of the Civil War. So um I think that's yeah, I think that's that's pretty much that's pretty much how it how it came about. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? So it basically tells the story of the Irish Civil War. Um and it looks at it looks at this it looks at it from from what was by what has been generally accepted as the 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 the, the moment of division, which was the vote on the Anglo-Irish Treaty, um, which was signed in December 1921, and the vote on that by um, the, the the breakaway Republican government, um, which was known as Doyle Aaron, um, and Doyle Aaron voted on the treaty, and they voted to accept the treaty um, by 64 votes to 57 on the 7th of January 1922. So from the seventh of January nineteen twenty-two, um, there is a deterioration in the revolutionary movement in Ireland. There is a there is a, a, a disintegration. The the previous solid block of um, Republican militant um, supporters and and personalities begins to fracture over the treaty and over what the treaty means for. Ireland, what it means for, um, you know, the Irish Republic that was proclaimed in 1916 and then it was enacted in 1919 by, by Dáil Um So the major theme here is how does a revolutionary movement disintegrate so quickly um, and how, you know, what efforts were there to kind of, you know, Staunch this 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 hemorrhage um, of of activists um, and division and basically violence. Um, Ireland had gone through a period um, between nineteen nineteen and nineteen twenty one of 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 pretty sustained violence um, in an on a on a on a on an island wide level um, as. Forces loyal to Doyle Aaron fought against forces loyal to the British state. Um, Irishmen fighting Irishmen, um, in actual fact, because um, there were Irishmen on both sides. You know, Irishmen loyal to the British state and Irishmen loyal to the Irish Republic. So, so that can be seen maybe as as a civil war in its own right. Um, but the the the, the actual civil war, the, the the topic in my book, um, it comes. It comes down to so violence begetting violence. Um, there is a temporary truce 
um, from about March to June 1922. And then it kicks off on the 28th of June 1922. The symbolic forecourt building in Dublin is bombarded um, by forces loyal to the provisional government, which was the government set up under the treaty. Um, and they were attacking forces loyal to the Irish Republic. So that's how the that's how the that's how the civil war starts. And from there it escalates into a military conflict um pretty much over the next four months. So by by October nineteen twenty two, most of the military aspect of the civil war is actually is actually finished. The Republicans have been all but militarily defeated um in kind of set peace battles or, you know, um, invasion or military um, sweeps through the c- countrywide, um, and they're reduced to guerrilla fighting. They're reduced to ambushes. They're reduced to criminality. They're reduced to um, carry out raids on you know um, military barracks or you know local towns or wherever um, to kind of <laughs> terrorize the, the population, much as they had done. In, in the period nineteen nineteen to twenty one, what we, what we in, in in the Irish history you know, would term the War of Independence, some would term the Anglo Irish War of, of nineteen to nineteen to twenty one, but in the Civil War you see a regression, a reversion back to back to guerrilla guerrilla tactics, and you see, uh, and this causes a heavy handed approach by the government where they, where they come down, draconian on, these these people. They come down draconian on the on the on the um on the Republicans. So they they, they basically carry out controversial policies of executions and um extrajudicial murders. Um and I'll talk a bit more about that maybe maybe in a later in a later section of this of this chat. Why did you choose to write an introduction to the, to the Irish Civil War? Why did you choose to do an introduction to this conflict rather than a different kind of research monograph? Yeah, so I think again, as 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 I as I as I stated, I think it was it was pretty much the brief I was given. Um, it had to be a it had to be a short. Things there was I think there was a I can't remember the exact word word limit no, but it it had to be it had to be short. It had to be brief, and um, there are. Ten, I think, off the top of my the top of my head, there are ten different monographs um, in circulation or available um, explaining the Irish Civil War in more detail, or explaining various aspects of the Irish Civil War in more detail. Um, and they are a lot of them are listed in the in the bibliography to this book. So this book, again, as I said, it's a primer. It's a it's an introduction. It tells basically tells the story of what went on. And um, now I know that reading through it again, it does necessarily jump from um it jumps from geographical place to geographical place. But the reason for that was because I wanted to get a, a sense of the entire country. So I wanted to get a sense of what was going on in the entire country. So I was I was very conscious of striking a balance between, you know, so in Ireland we have four provinces. Munster, Leinster, Ulster, and Connacht, and I was conscious of balancing what was going on. In even though most of the fighting happened 
most of the fighting that has been written about happened in Leinster and Munster. But a lot of events happened in Ulster and Connacht that haven't been hugely touched on by by historians or haven't haven't been haven't been um haven't been written about in the main um histories of the period um with one or two notable exceptions. Um, so that so I was trying to bring them into bring bring them in for for for, for my intended audience, which is basically the, the general history reader. Um anyone who's interested in history, Irish history, histories of civil war, histories of you know intercommunal conflict, internationalist conflict. Um I think they'll all they'll all pick up something um from this book. How did Irish history unfold between the Easter Rising of nineteen sixteen and the events you document in your book? Can you contextualize the events that you chronicle by explaining what happened in the Easter Rising? Yeah. So so I think just to to kind of just go back a small bit before, because the Easter Rising was that Easter Rising was a I think in, in the words of one historian, the Easter Rising had a long gestation. Okay, it had a long it had a long birth. Um where it had a long period of, of coming to the coming to the um coming to the surface. And you can trace this back to post famine Ireland. Um so post the so the Great Famine. So in Ireland in from eighteen forty five to fifty two was the subject of a massive failure of the potato crop which um which upon which most of the population um subsisted on. Okay, they they, they they depended on the potato for their for their nourishment. And that crop failed several times between eighteen forty five and eighteen forty seven and caused a massive famine. Um where I think that the most recent estimates were that a million people died on the island of Ireland and then another million people emigrated as a result of the famine. And this opened a massive immigration um, valve, if you will, from Ireland to North America, to Britain, to Australia, um, and to other parts of the world. Um, that that immigration tap basically opened into a flood from eighteen from the eighteen fifties up to up to quite recently. Really, I mean, that's 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 why there is a massive Irish diaspora um, across the world is be is largely because of the the famine, but the famine also caused um a revulsion um in how in how Ireland was governed. So just to go back another bit, um so prior to prior to eighteen hundred Ireland was governed as a kind of a semi autonomous colony of of the of the of of, of Britain. Um and for a period in the very late 18th century, it had a parliament of its own in Dublin. Um, a parliament was abolished in 1800 under the Act of Union, which created the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Um, and this this came into effect in 1801. So from 1801, Ireland is, in effect, part of the United Kingdom. Ireland elects, I think it was 103 MPs that sat in the Imperial Parliament in Westminster, London. Um and various other Ireland is governed by a Lord Lieutenant or a Viceroy with a Chief Secretary and a civil service under his under his command. 
Um, and that is basically Irish government up until 1922. And that the, the Lord Lieutenant, the Chief Secretary and his officials run the government in Ireland. Um, and that's for the whole of Ireland, from, from, from Belfast to Dublin to Cork, so on. Um, Godway, etc. Um, so, so after the famine, there is a kind of there is a there is a there is a realization that you know the constitutional position of Ireland needs to change. So you have you have uh, an abortive um, Republican rising um, organized by the Irish Republican Brotherhood or the Fenian Brotherhood um, in eighteen sixty seven. You have which is a complete failure. Um, but which does create markers, um, and does create does create um, cultural touchstones, um, or commemorative touchstones that that form a, a big part in the revival of Fenianism in the in the early twentieth century. Um, they hark back to this to this to this period quite a lot. Um, secondly, you have a movement towards self government for Ireland, or what what what. what what, what historians called what Irish historians of Ireland called home rule. Okay. Home rule basically is a parliament in Dublin. So similar to the parliament that existed at the end of the, the 18th century. And um, this with a you know a little more power to, you know, for Ireland to govern its own affairs. That not everything has to be, you know, legislated for at Westminster, that we could we could have laws passed in Dublin for, you know, the island. Um so all that is going on um, up to, you know, up to nineteen, up to, up to you know, up to nineteen sixteen. Um, so it all comes to, so and you have various other, um, various other, various other um, movements or various other cultural touchstones such as the Gaelic League, um, which is a kind of a movement for you know the learning of Irish, Irish after the famine, the the. the the use of Irish as the primary language, as as you, as you can hear from me, for me, um, is you know is is is, is negligible. Okay, the, the 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 population that speak Ireland as the Irish as the first language declines hugely, and um, right up to you know right up to almost to what I'd say my generation I think would be would be uh, and and the generation after me are, are kind of reviving in in huge in huge parts that that. The, the study the use of Irish um in, in, in everyday language. But in eighteen ninety two the Gaelic League is founded as a method of as as a, as a means to promote the study of the Irish language and study of Irish language and Irish custom. And this is a kind of a this is a kind of a part of a wider um movement called the Irish Revival. So you have the Gaelic League in eighteen ninety two, um eight years before that in eighteen eighty four, the Gaelic Athletic Association of the GAA is founded to promote um, Irish games to promote the sport of hurling, um, rounders, handball, etc. Um, Gaelic football, which is kind of a hybrid, hybrid, hybrid sport, but hurling has a longer, a longer tradition uh, in Ireland. Um, and all these are founded as a way of kind of asserting Ireland as you know a separate nation with its own language, with its own customs, with its own pastimes. In opposition to our, you know, as a pushback against the growing Anglicization of Irish culture, of you know, English music halls, English entertainments, English newspapers, um, circulating 
you know, especially in, say, Dublin and, and to a lesser extent in Cork. Um, but, you know, Irish newspapers taking copious amounts of material from English newspapers and placing it in their own columns. And and then that's circulating. So there is there is this whole cultural pushback against a, a, a growing Anglicization. So the Gaelic League is, a, you know, it's set up in 1893 and it is a tremendous success. Um, it has, within... Within a decade, it has classes in, you know, there are Gaelic classes in almost every parish in Ireland. Um, you have traveling teachers employed by the Gaelic League to go around holding Irish classes um, on a weekly or a fortnightly or a monthly basis, depending on the depending on the, the, the areas they cover. So, and as time goes on, um, there is this new generation of there's this new generation emerges that is schooled in the Gaelic League, that is schooled in the GA, that is, you know, that are involved in the campaigns for, you know, promoting Irish manufactured goods that, you know, buy Irish and guaranteed Irish, all these sort of things. Um, and this is called the Irish Ireland movement. And a lot of these, a lot of these are, you know, then radicalized by, you know, the growing military the growing um, militarization of societies all across Europe as a as a result of you know imperial conquests and things like the scramble for Africa and um, where we you know, where where large armies are raised to conquer um, various parts of Africa. I mean the, the most the most um, the most strongest examples are you know Britain and France and um, to conquer you know most of Africa between them, and um, but they have large standing armies and. You know, you have the rise of Germany as a as a military and a political and an industrial power in in Europe, and people are you know, and because of you know, because of things like the the, the, the telegraph, um, you know, the invention of the telegraph and things, so news can be transmitted much easier between 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 various parts of the world. So people people from where I grew up. Um, if you look at if you look at the newspaper, there were I think there were two newspapers in circulation in the area that I grew up um, in this time, um, and they are you know chock full. A lot of one of them is chock full of international news, which you wouldn't see, which you wouldn't have seen maybe a decade previously or a generation previously. Um, so there is, and they're reading about all this. They're looking at they're looking at. Societies like Germany, which are, you know, which have basically Germany has come from nowhere since 1870 and has kind of, you know, risen up as a, as a, as a preeminent power in Europe. And they're looking at German society. They're looking at the, the militarization, industrialization, the, 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 you know, so there is this growing sense of, you know, growing military power, not just in Britain, but in Germany and France um, and, and various other parts of Europe, Russia as well, and the Russian Empire. So there is this militarization, there is this radicalization, there is this idea that, you know, the gun is a good thing, or the gun, you know, solves all, or the gun, you know, and, and it's also tied into the ideas of, you know, masculinity, you're, you're not a man unless you can handle a gun. Um, so all this is having an effect on this new generation that's coming up, um, as I said, that was schooled in the Gaelic League, that was schooled in Irish Ireland. So you have all this, you have all these ideas swirling around and, and, and coagulating and, and, and diffusing um, 
into various movements. Um, and on the other side, on the what we call the constitution, so that's that's basically the Irish Ireland movement, the Gaelic League. A lot of this gets tied into the movement for separatism. Um, you know, Ireland, a separate nation. If it's a separate nation, it should have a separate state. This is not, you know, this is not a novel idea. This is this is coming from, this is coming from, you know, movements in in Europe, um, especially in the in the in the larger empires, um, in say for example the Austro-Hungarian Empire, where you know every nationality has its own kind of um, movement, um, <clears throat> for you know self-government or for you know the re- recognition of, as a nation state. So the movement of you know, for for nation statism better phrase um and this all kind of has an influence in Ireland this all has an influence in Ireland so you have you have what's called the separatists who are looking for you know a separate Irish nation state you have the constitutionalists who are the home rulers who are looking for you know self-government self-government for Ireland um and they they're the they're the two big blocks in Irish nationalism a third block within Irish political life is a movement or just a, a, a community of people who think that Ireland are better off under the Union. Uh-huh. That is cool from 1801 should stay the same. That, mm-hmm. um, that, um, that the, the Union should be maintained. And a lot of these, the, these are mostly concentrated in the industrial heartland of Ireland, which is the northeast corner situated around the, the city of Belfast. Um, so you have separatists, constitutionalists, unionists. In 1912, the Liberal government in the UK introduces a Home Rule Bill for Ireland. And over the next two years, you have what's known as the Home Rule Crisis. And the ho- what, what, now I could go into the Home Rule Crisis for, you know, another hour or more, was um, the upshot of the Home Rule Crisis, why it's so important, is that in 1913, the Unionists in Ulster found the Ulster Volunteer Force. As a consequence, later on in 1913, the Irish Volunteers are formed in Dublin. So you have two paramilitary organisations, one sworn to defend you know, Ireland as part of the Union, and one that's you know, sworn to you know, get Home Rule by any means necessary. Um, if this means guns, well, then so be it. Um, the Irish Volunteers, it's quickly infiltrated by the Irish Republican Brotherhood, by the by by the, the new generation of Fenians, quickly join the 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 Irish Republican Brotherhood because they see this is you know you get military training, you get access to guns, and you know once we have those, we can you know we we we, we can we can. We can have a, rebe- a rebellion against our against British rule, but we'll do it. We'll do it under cover of the Irish Volunteers. So the Irish Volunteers as a movement is kind of used as a secret training for for a new rebellion, um, and this continues. You know, nineteen fourteen, First World War breaks out. Um, John Redmond, who is the leader of Irish constitutional nationalism, he's the head of what's called the Irish Parliamentary Party, which has 73 MPs at Westminster. He stands up, um, I think it's either the day that Britain declares war in Germany or the day after, I can't remember exactly which, you know, and he, he offers 
the Irish volunteers as a home defence movement, as a as a as a movement to defend Ireland in the wake of a, an invasion by Germany. And because you know at this time you know Germany is making lightning progress through Belgium, and hence why Britain declares war on Germany. And there are fears that France could France could fall, you know, within months. It's, if, if not properly, not properly defended, um, and that would leave the way open for Germany then to attack Britain either directly across the Channel from France or around to Ireland and in the back door, um, as they as, as they see it into Britain. But Redmond stands up in the in the House of Commons and he basically just says, "I'm offering the volunteers for home defence." Basically, the British Army in Ireland, and there were however many thousand British Army soldiers stationed in Ireland in various camps and in various garrison towns um, throughout Ireland. Um, I think in Cork there were ones in Fermoy, Bandon, Kinsale. Um, and he says, you don't need to leave those there. They can go and fight the German army in France and in Belgium and the Irish volunteers will take care of, of, of defence. This offer is rejected. This offer is also it also causes a split in the in the volunteers. The vast majority of Irish volunteers vote to follow Redmond, but there is a tiny, tiny in 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 relative terms, um, cadre of of volunteers who wish to, you know, rebel basically, and they they retain the the name Irish volunteers, the ones who follow Redmond, and a lot of them go into the British Army and fight in. In, in on the Western Front and in various other in various other um, fronts in as part of the British Army, um, they're called the National Volunteers. So you have the National Volunteers and the Irish Volunteers, and the Irish Volunteers are the ones who form the core of the people who come out and fight in 1916. Um, now the Easter Rising in 1916, <coughs> it's I think uh, I think the the quote is. It's a triumph of failure. Okay, the original plan for the rising was that um, a number of or a, a certain amount of guns and, and ammunition was purchased in Germany um, by by a guy called Sir Roger Casement, and Roger Casement um, was a British humanitarian who had made a huge name for himself in exposing. Um, Belgian colonial atrocities in the Congo, in Africa, and he had he had you know he basically created or he had become world famous because of that. But he was recruited by by um, the Irish volunteers to per- to go to Germany, um, under the guise of humanitarianism that he was he was going to you know inspect the conditions in German prisoner of war or in, in prisoner of war camps that Germany had for. For capturing you know, British French soldiers, um, and he was going to Germany with that objective, but also with the objective of um, purchasing arms for this Irish rebellion. The arms were purchased; they were loaded onto a ship called the Odd, and the Odd sailed um, to off the west coast of Ireland, where it was intercepted by the British Navy and brought into harbour. It was actually brought into harbour here in Cork. Um, and it was scuttled at the entrance to the harbour. So they all went to the bottom of the sea with all its guns on board. Casement came ashore um, from a, a German submarine, came ashore in a place in County Kerry called Banner Strand, and he was immediately arrested. So plans were thrown into disarray. 
This is roughly the third week of April, 1916. So close enough to the religious feast of Easter. Um, there was a whole um, debate about why Easter, why this time of year. Um, and there's a whole historiography about um, the connotations of resurrection and bloodshed, so on and so forth. Um, we don't have time to get into that here. But um, So the upshot is, plans were thrown into disarray. The Irish volunteers that should have mowed, that, that were mobilised on Easter Sunday with you know, the intent of you know, collecting these arms and mowing them and marching on Dublin to overthrow the British government in Ireland, um, that's out the window. So what happens is um, a ad hoc meeting takes place on you know, either early Easter Sunday morning or late Easter Sunday evening, um, where the Irish volunteer leadership in Dublin decide we're going to we're going to go ahead, we're going to go ahead, we're going to occupy several buildings within the capital within Dublin, and we're going to go ahead, and we're going to see how far it takes us. And um, so that's that's basically what happens. So on the twenty fourth of April, nineteen sixteen. Several buildings in Dublin city centre are occupied. Um, one of the leaders of the rebellion, Patrick Patrick or Patrick Pierce, um, walks out in front of the General Post Office on O'Connell Street in Dublin and reads the proclamation of the Irish Republic. Um, he reads it out to a bemused looking um, set of people um, on O'Connell Street or Sackville Street as it's known um, back then. It's O'Connell Street today. Um, and so what happens is, okay, they, they they fortify as best they can. They fortify these positions and they hold out for roughly a week until the British Army, who had been caught completely by surprise, um, you know, they, they they kind of gather themselves together and they get themselves together and they 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 crush the rebellion and they they destroy most of Dublin city centre through shelling and then various other um, forms of, and they they basically capture all the rebels. Um, the ringleaders of our one of the ringleaders is executed and what you have then is a major shift over the next 18 months to two years away from the constitutional path the constitutional nationalist of Redmond and all the uh, and all his followers are seen as complicit in the execution of these these men in 1916 um and the separatists basically gathered huge public support. Um, in 1917, the movement called Sinn Féin um, is reorganized. It merges with the Irish Volunteers. So it creates a Republican movement um, titled Sinn Féin. Um, Sinn Féin has a long history. Again, we did another podcast to go into that. But um, so Sinn Féin basically absorbs all the Irish volunteers, the paramilitary forces, um, all the separatists, you know, are attracted to Sinn Féin and join Sinn Féin once it, once it gets up and running formally. And in 1918, at the general election, which follows the end of the First World War, so there's a general election in Britain at the end of the First World War, and Sinn Féin stands and sweeps aside the Irish Parliamentary Party. And the Irish Parliamentary Party goes from 73 seats to 6 seats. Um, and Sinn Féin takes over the rest. But Sinn Féin does not take its seats at Westminster. Instead, it meets in Dublin on the 21st of January 1919 and forms Dáil Éireann and proclaims the Irish Republic. It proclaims the Irish Republic that was proclaimed in 1916. It now says, this was proclaimed in 1916. It now exists in 1919. 
Who was Hannah Sheehy Skeffington? Can you tell us about her? So Hannah Sheehy Skeffington. Um, okay, she deserves she she deserves a podcast album. She she deserves it because she's a she's a formidable. I think is the, is the word formidable presence. Um, in Irish women's history, in Irish labour history, in Irish um, in Irish basically in Irish political or in Irish history. I think she she is one of the she is one of the great women. Um, if, if, if such a thing can be can be said, um, but she's born in Kenturkin County Cork. Um, her father is a member of the Irish Parliamentary Party, David Sheehy. Um, she marries a an incredibly character, Francis Skeffington, um, and he is he is probably famous, most famous as one of Ireland's only pacifists in the early twentieth century. Yeah, he is he is a he is a professed pacifist. He does not believe in war, which marks him out um, among his contemporaries. Um, but Hedish East Skeffington is involved in in numerous uh, women's movements, in numerous labor movements, in movements for peace, um, and you know non nonviolent um, nonviolent resistance. Um, I think from from the context of the Civil War, um, she was she was appointed as a director of organization for Sinn Féin back in I think it was in nineteen nineteen or nineteen twenty, and she's also on the committee of the Irish White Cross. The Irish White Cross is a humanitarian um, humanitarian organization that looks after people that have suffered various injuries or whatever or have you know looks after the the, the families of, 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 of people that have been killed because of war um, and during the the war of independence or the Anglo-Irish war the the Irish White Cross does tremendous work um countrywide in in, in looking after in looking after these families um in the context of the Civil War Adishi Skeffington despite the fact that her you know, her father was an Irish nationalist MP. That she was a constitutional nationalist, you know, by 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 birth or whatever. She is a Republican, and she is a doctrinaire Republican, and she she votes against the treaty. She votes against the the, the, the treaty of nineteen twenty one, and she basically takes the Republican side in the in in the Civil War. Um, as part of her work, she tours the USA. She raises funds for the families of Republicans who have been arrested and imprisoned. And when she comes back to Ireland in early 1923, she co-founds the Women's Prisoners Defence League, um, which basically, again, it uses the money that she's fundraised for in America. She, it uses that to kind of help families of the prisoners and to kind of campaign for their release. Um, the Women's Prisoners Defence League is declared illegal by the government and um, by the provisional government and later the government of the Irish Free State. Um, and she, Skeffington, and all of her, her colleagues are arrested and they're thrown into the Mountjoy Jail in Dublin or Kilmainham Jail in Dublin. And there is a concerted um, protest against their their you know, internal protests within the prisons. And um, there's hunger strikes. There's um, 
You know, they at one stage they throw all their bedding out their jail window, out their jail cell windows, and they go on hunger strike. They refuse to, you know, they refuse to leave their cells in order to. They're kicked, they're punched, they're beaten, and they're thrown downstairs. And one of them is shot at um, in the leg um, and injured, and, and that very badly injured. Um, and so, so, so they're 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 horrifically treated. They're horrifically treated by by the authorities in total contravention of all the the conventions, um, you know, that guard that, that govern the rights of of prisoners in conflict um, at the time. Um, but by the summer of nineteen twenty three, they're all released. They're all released. Um, she Skevington then returns to her work. She goes back to um, she goes back to to organizing labor movements. She goes back to organizing women's movements. She is in so as part of the, the Versailles settlement of the end of World War One, they formed the League of Nations. Um, the Irish Free State applies to join the League of Nations, and very late in 1923, she goes to I think it's Geneva to the Geneva or Lausanne in Switzerland, where the League of Nations are based. Um, where Ireland or the Irish Free State is applying to join the League of Nations as she vociferously campaigns against our, the Irish Free State being let into the League of Nations um, she's not successful so she comes back to Ireland and she resumes her work in the labour movement and in the humanitarian movement and she dies in 1946 who, who was Mary Eva Comerford? why is she significant? So yeah, so for Mary Eva or Mara Comerford, um, I think she 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 took the the Irish version of her of her name. Um, she is, and I was, you know, earlier today I was I was doing a, quite a bit of reading about about, about her, and um, she is a fascinating character in this whole in this whole story. And I think she is she's a kind of an exemplar of she's an exemplar of how children of Middle class, you know, middle class parents or middle class nationalist parents kind of are radicalized by by what goes on in Easter 1916. Um, so Maura Comfort, I'm going to use her, I'm going to use it because that's that's what she's best known as. Um, she's born in 1893 in Cote Rico. Her fa- her her parents were were neighbors of the family of Charles Stuart Parnell, who is um, who is kind of a Wichon landlord, but he's also the preeminent political figure in Ireland um between eighteen eighty one and eighteen ninety one. Um and you know by the time Mara that she born, Parnell is dead, but he's only dead two years. So his his influence and his 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 um his legacy is, is still strong in the Irish country, in the in, in the Irish political landscape. Um was the Comerfords, um, even though they were neighbours of Parnell's, their their wealth and prestige were in decline. Um, and once she's finished her her education, she was educated privately at home, privately at home, and then in the convent. She was sent to England to train as a secretary. Um, and it's while she's in England, while she's living in in London, that she first begins to learn of okay, all the the great political. Uh, upheavals that's happening in London um, with regards to Irish home rule so she she reads up or she, she reads widely on 
she's widely on Irish history and Irish politics, and she becomes she becomes an Irish nationalist. Now, an Irish nationalist, okay, is you know supporter of you know the right to Ireland to to, to be a nation. Um, it's only later when she comes home, she comes back to Ireland. Um, she comes back to Ireland. She joins her mother. Her father is dead at this stage. She comes back to her mother. Her mother is living in County Wexford. Um, so she joins she with her mother's family. Um, and she joined Mara joins local cooperative movements. She joins women's societies. Um, all kind of very middle class to like slightly upper class um pursuits um that they do. She talks in her memoirs about um going, you know, hunting and so on and so forth, all the, the sports of the of the gentry in, in, in Britain and Ireland. Um but and once the First World War outbreaks or breaks out, she helps organise assistance for refugees from Belgium. So, you know, shortly after the German invasion of of Belgium in in in, in August eighteen fourteen, there is a there is a there is a, a well okay I'm going to use the word slope, but there is a there is a, a surge of refugees um, from Belgium to Britain and Ireland, um, and there are local committees set up to. To, to to assist these to assist these um to assist these people. So so Comerford's involved in, in these in 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 Cody Wexford. Um in nineteen sixteen she 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 visits relations in Dublin around Easter time. Um and she's walking down Grafton Street, which is one of the central shopping streets in Dublin, and a whole swathe of Irish volunteers come marching towards her on their way to occupy um, one of the buildings, or I think they were they were going to kind of attack Trinity College Dublin, something like that. And she writes in her she writes in her she writes in her memoirs that she's absolutely stunned by this. She's absolutely, um, you know, she 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 walks down Grafton Street, she hops on a tram to meet her to 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 meet her um to meet her her whatever reservation or whatever whatever engagement she was she was going to, but she can't stop thinking about these men, um. On her, once she gets back, once 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 she gets back to Wexford, okay, because travel is is restricted um, until after the until after the raising is put down. Um, on her return to Wexford, she immediately joins the local branches of Sinn Féin and Cumann Amon. is an Irish nationalist women's movement. Um, that was started in and around 1913, 1914, and blossomed in membership. Um, from 1960 up. Uh, to to whatever 1990 um so she joins in two years later she moves back to dublin and she starts working as a secretary she starts she works as a secretary for a, a number of different people um until she comes to start working for a secretary a secretary for one of the leaders for one of the widows of the leaders of 1916 so one of the one of the executed leaders of 1916 his widow employs her as a secretary um Comerford campaigns for Sinn Féin in 1918 in the, at the election. During the War of Independence, she's travelling the country, organising common among branches. She's also carrying dispatches, so reports and, and correspondence for, you know, Irish volunteer branches who can't, you know, so they can't correspond by a telegraph or anything like that, otherwise they'd be intercepted by the military. So they carry, they basically write them out in note, Valhen or whatever, or in code sometimes and they get mostly women to do to carry them from, from from place to place because 
the likelihood of a woman being stopped by an army patrol at this stage is is, is quite is quite small. So that that they're they're some women members of organizations that come and on perform these you know incredibly arduous but also incredibly important tasks um, during the war of independence and also during the civil war. Um, so Comerford is okay by this stage she's radicalized. Okay, she's a she's a she's a Republican. Um, she opposes the treaty in 1922, and during the Civil War, she again works as a dispatch carrier, and along with Hannah Shee Skeffington, okay, she's she's in the Women's Prisoners Defence League. She she gets arrested. Um, she's the woman that's shot in the leg, um, that I talked about earlier. Um, she's she's on hunger strike for three weeks. Um, she's let out in humanitarian grounds, but once she's back up to full uh, health, she's she's arrested again and imprisoned. And then she goes back in hunger strike, and then she's eventually released for good. Um, okay, she's released in the summer of 1923 again. She campaigns for Sinn Féin again in the August 1923 general election. Again, she's arrested, but she's still released. Um, in 1924, she tours America on a fundraising mission for Sinn Féin. Um, she comes home. She's penniless. Um, she goes back to Wexford. She's, okay, her... Her, she's estranged from her family, from her from from her in laws, from her cousins. Um, she she starts a poultry farm, and she makes money running a poultry farm, um, for, I think a year or eighteen months. Um, in nineteen twenty six, she's elected back onto the she's elected onto the Sinn Féin executive, and then she's thrown in jail again because she's trying to influence juries, um, in court cases involving Republican prisoners. By 1935, she is the editor. She's the editor of the woman's page of the Irish Press newspaper. The Irish Press newspaper was founded by Eamon de Valera um, in the 1930s as a as a vehicle for Republican viewpoint. Um, so Comerford is employed by the Irish Press for the next 30 years. Um, in 1941, she serves a prize with the Republican movement, and um, she re- she retires. From the Irish Press in 1964, and um, she appears in court again in 1976 because she's attending a band rally of Sinn Féin in Dublin. Okay, she's whatever she is, she's seven, she's in her 80s at this stage, um, and she volunteers to go to jail in her 80s. Uh, that um, she dies in 1982. Her memoir of the period is called On Dangerous Ground, and it was only recently published. Um, it, it survived for years in her archive, um, which was deposited in University College Dublin. Um, but in 2021, her her, her nephew's wife um, actually published it, um, and it is a fascinating read for anyone who's anyone who's interested in, in it because it's it's, a, it's an exemplar of, of of how women are radicalized and how women. You know, the roles that women perform in the War of Independence. So, who was Erskine Childers? Can you elaborate? I can. Yeah. So, um, Erskine Childers. It's Childers, actually. I think. I think. Yeah, Childers for the world. But Childers is. I'm, try, I'm trying to find the right words. He is. He is. He is a, an example of how people from outside of Ireland. Um, become not only interested but central to the to the to the to the story of 
in this instance, the Republican movement in the Irish Civil War, um, and how they come, how they how they go from having no connection whatsoever, very little connection whatsoever with Irish nationalism, to being doctrinaire Republicans. Um, and I think it's a it's a story that has kind of reverberated down through time. I know, I know his grandson, I think he is, is very active on, on Twitter. So, <laughs> or X, as it's called now. So I, I, I'm, I'm going to be going to be careful in in, in how I in how I phrase this. Um, that will be Anthony <laughs> once this is released. So, children was born in London in 1870. His father is the secretary to the governor of Ceylon, or Sri Lanka, as it is now. Um, his mother was a member of the Barton family who owned 2,000 acres near Glendalock and County Wicklow. So that's his connection to Ireland. Um, his mother is, his mother is, 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 is his mother's family, are from County Wicklow. is saying to live with the Bartons um, when his father dies, um, and his mother dies not, not so long after, so... Erskine is about 13 when, his, when, when he becomes ineffective. Um, but despite that, he's educated in England and he later reads law and classics in Cambridge and he briefly studies for the bar um, before he becomes a joint assistant clerk in the House of Commons in 1895. So the House of Commons, the, Imperial, the, the lower house of the Imperial Parliament in Westminster. Um, in 1899, he joined the British Army in South Africa during the Second Anglo-Boer War. So the Anglo-Boer War is where Britain will have war with the Boer republics in South Africa, were kind of semi-autonomous independent republics in South Africa. Um, and there was always tension between the British and who would colonize kind of the area around where Cape Town is now um, and the, the Boer republics up in Pretoria and, and, and Johannesburg in, in the Transvaal. Um, so, so in 1899, there is a second outbreak of war between 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 the Boer Republics and, and Britain. And Childers is serving in the British Army in South Africa at the time. And he, he serves as an artillery driver, I think, for a year or just over a year. And he comes back to England and he writes a memoir. And the memoir sounds pretty well. Um, however, it's his second book. Um, it's his second book cap catapults him to 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 fame um in Britain and in and in in other parts of the world, I think in America as well. Um, in 1903, he publishes a novel called The Riddle of the Sands. And The Riddle of the Sands is kind of, it's seen as the first modern spy novel. So, you know, you think of people like, you know, James Bond and people like that. Childers is kind of the first to kind of um, put this, put this in print using his, using his experiences of it. He was a keen yachtsman. He was a, he was a keen, um, he was a pretty good soldier as well, by all accounts. Um, so he, he puts all these experiences into the book. Um, it's praised as a massive work of fiction, even though he says it's not fiction at all. <laughs> so, but, so he's a, he, 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 he's living well off the, off the, off the royalties to this book. And um, while working as a, uh, still working as, as a, as a clerk in the House of Commons. And it's while he was working as the clerk in the House of Commons that he becomes a supporter of Irish home rule, of Irish constitutional nationalism. Um, this is during the period of what's called the controversial People's Budget in 1909 and 1910. The British Chancellor of the Exchequer, Lloyd George, introduces a budget that hikes up the taxes on things like 
um, land holding um, if you hold land your 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 taxes are increased um the prices of beer and spirits are are hiked up um and there's 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 outcry there's outcry in Britain there's outcry in Ireland over it and um, the government nearly falls because of it it takes it takes several attempts for the, the budget to pass through Parliament um and there's a constitutional crisis over the power of the upper house versus the power of the lower house um to, to make it all um something I won't go into um maybe another type um but Childers is during this time Childers is, is Childers is um he's caught or he's 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 um he's he becomes a supporter of Irish Home Rule. He publishes a pamphlet in 1911 called The Framework of Home Rule. Um, he becomes involved in the founding of the Home Rule League, which is a pressure group set up by supporters of the Liberal Party in England. He's adopted as the prospective Liberal candidate for a by-election in a place called Devonport in 1912, but he turns it down. Um, in 1914, he's approached to use his yacht, the Asgard, to land arms for the Irish for the for the Irish or national volunteers um at a, a little seaside port called Hove, which is just north of Dublin City, um in nineteen fourteen. And he, he his yacht, the Asgard, is used to bring those to bring those 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 arms ashore. Um <clears throat> during the First World War he goes back into the British Army, he goes back into the British Armed Forces. He serves as an intelligence officer in the Royal Naval Air Service. Um He's granted leave in 1917 to serve as an assistant secretary to the Irish Convention, and um, which was a kind of a, a basically a, a, a parliament or a, 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 a negotiating um, forum for to see could a, a scheme of home rule be be, be introduced. Um, it failed in 1918. Um, but while he's serving as the secretary to this convention, his political outlook shifts again. He becomes a supporter of Dominion Home Rule. He opposes the introduction of conscription into Ireland in 1918. Um, and at the end of the war, he, he moves to Ireland to assist Sinn Féin in their propaganda department. So he begins working at a pub, in publishing a publication called the Irish Bulletin, which is spreading the message of Sinn Féin to journalists outside of Ireland. Um, his cousin, Robert Barton, is arrested on two occasions by British military forces, and this hardens children's stance against the British military, against 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 British government in Ireland. Um, he becomes a close confidant of Eamon de Valera, despite many of you know, de Valera at this time is the leader, the the, the the head, the president of Sinn Fein, the Sinn Fein that was that was reconstituted in 1917. De Valera is the sole surviving commander from the Easter Rising. Um so sole survivor because allegedly he 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 was spared execution as he was an American citizen. He was actually born in New York of a Spanish father and an Irish mother. Um grew up in County Limerick. Um and from there became became involved in the in, in the Irish Republican movement. Um but Childers is a close confidant of De Valera, which kind of um you know, a lot of people within Sinn Fein don't like him. Arthur Griffiths, who founded the original Sinn Féin, he calls him a damned Englishman. Um, in 1921, Childers becomes the director of propaganda for Sinn Féin, so he's 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 over all the the, the propaganda, over all the messaging. He's he's basically in control of the message that Sinn Féin puts out to to the world. He's also elected a member of Doyle Ireland in 1921. Um, during the negotiations for the treaty 
Schindler serves as a secretary to the delegation. Um, he's basically reporting back to De Valera on secret, um, which, you know, annoys the hell out of Arthur Griffith and also Michael Collins, who are the heads of the, 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 the joint heads of the delegation. Um, after the treaty is signed, Childers is one of the most virulent critics of the treaty. He is the he is you know he is the chief doctrinaire Republican. He speaks with a cutlass English accent, but he's you know he's he's militant militantly anti-treaty and pro-republic. Um, and I think his influence on the Republican side during the Civil War um, is key to how long the Civil War lasts. There, there are many who make the argument, contemporaries and, and later historians make the argument that if it wasn't for Childers, the Civil War would have been over within three months. It was because of Childers' intransigence. It was because of the fact that he was churning out um, propaganda on a daily basis, um, first of all from Dublin, and then later when the Republican movement kind of is surrounded in Dublin, they escape to you know, the the wilds and the, the the wild mountains of, of West Cork and Kerry, and he's he's basically churning out these hand printed leaflets and handbills, um, you know, still you know fighting for the Republican print, um, and it's having a you know an, an an undue influence on the on the population according to according to the government, um, and he is blamed for this, um, so there is a there is a kind of a there is a kind of an attitude within the government that it can, if, if we can get rid of him at all, um, we will. So, on the 10th of November 1922, Childers is on the run. He turns up at his cousin Robert Barton's house in Wichita. Um, somebody within the house alerts the authorities, alerts the, 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 the government and alerts the army that, that Childers is here. So the army come, throw him the house, arrest Childers. He's found in possession of a firearm. It's a small handgun that Michael Collins gave him as a present. He's charged with he's charged with the he's charged with um, possession of a firearm, which is under a resolution that was passed in the Doyle um, two months previously, is punishable by death. So he's incarcerated in a barracks in Dublin while his case is being while his court martial is happening. He is sentenced to death. There is an appeal, um, and the appeal is unsuccessful. And less than twenty-four hours after the appeal is rejected, he's executed by firing squad. So his, you know, his his life, um, and especially his death, is, is is kind of is is controversial. Can you tell us about prison conditions in Ireland during the Irish Civil War? What can you tell us about prisoners' experiences during the Irish Civil War? So, so I think, yeah. So, 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 so there's, there's, there are probably two. There are probably two um, hugely controversial aspects to the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Number one is, and we might talk about this in in, in a while. Um, number one is the policy of executions and reprisals. By the by the by the government and by Republican forces, and number two, very close second, is the treatment of prisoners by by well, in particular by the government. Um, so at the at, at the outset of the Civil War, it, it, it's kind of it, it's unknown how how many prisoners will be captured by the 
how many prisoners would be captured by the uh, by the movement or by the by the government, and where they should be where they should be incarcerated. And it's only within maybe a month of the civil war breaking out in June 1922 that they suddenly realized that okay, we have all these Republican the you old know, soldiers or fighters captured, and we've nowhere to put them. Okay, they they don't have the space, they don't have the jail space, they don't have the they don't have the the physical space to, to put these. So there are there are a number of different schemes and there are a number of different schemes that are that are that are dreamt up or that are that are that are, that are drafted um for this. One of them being and I, I think this is this is this is usually this speaks to a lot of a lot of how how how, how policy in this at uh, this stage was conducted kind of on the on the fly or on the hoof. Um one of these is the idea that the British territorial um island of St. Helena, which is, you know, miles out in the middle of nowhere in the Atlantic in the southern Atlantic Ocean, where mm. Napoleon had famously been incarcerated um, you know, and had died. Um, that the island of St. Helena would be used as a kind of a, a camp, as a, a as a prisoner camp, um thousands of miles away from Ireland. Um, and that you know that they would get the they would get the British army to 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 transport the prisoners out to to Saint Helena. So that idea is breaking as there for about five minutes, I would think, um, uh, before it's dismissed. Instead, they they seek the they seek the to you know they seek to 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 refurbish or to to open places like Kilmainham Jail in Dublin, Gormanstown Camp in County Meath. Cora camp in County Kildare, which was the which was the main barracks used by the British Army, um, prior to you know when they were when they when when they were the security forces in on the uh, on the island of Ireland, and um, these are open as as detention camps. Um, there's another one in in Atlone, which is in the centre of Ireland, uh, and it's it's a place called Costume Barracks, and. <clears throat> Costume barracks, okay, it only it had a very, very small number of actual physical cells, jail cells. So what they did was they brought, they bought tents. Yeah, they bought they, they the British Army provided, you know, tents to the and they they provided um, basic, very basic bedding facilities, um, and prisoners from the province of Connacht, from east from West Leinster were incarcerated in that in costume barracks in Ethelold. And it got to the point towards the middle at the end of nineteen twenty two where it was absolutely overcrowded. It was it was just it wasn't you you couldn't hold any more um you couldn't hold any more um prisoners in 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 the barracks. Um the Irish Independent newspaper ran a series of reports detailing conditions in these barracks, um, you had, um, you know, beds were in short supply. Prisoners were forced to lay on the ground in all weathers, um, you know, and you know, Ireland in you know, autumn winter wouldn't exactly be the the, the easiest place to lie on the ground. Um, Ireland, you know, throughout the year wouldn't be the easiest place to lie on any ground. Um, food was in hugely short supply. Prisoners were subject to constant abuse by those guarding them. Um, 
Some some prisoners alleged that the guards were shooting at them for you know entertainment. There was um, there was an allegation that 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 a, a government forces commander was taking pot shots at them from uh, the um, the roof of the barracks for his own sport um, at times, um, and as a result, there were multiple um, escape attempts um, made. So prisoners were tunneling. They were using makeshift explosives to blow holes in the barrack wall, um, and they were climbing. They were trying to climb over the walls using knotted blankets as as, as ropes. Um, over the winter of 1922-23, over 600 prisoners in costume barracks in Athlone took place to part in a hunger strike, um, which lasted, I think, two weeks, and then um, it was it wasn't successful. Um, I think a, a, a very important um, aspect of of incarceration and and, and imprisonment, and I, I've touched upon it when I was when I was discussing Hennessy Skeffington, um, and to an extent Maura Comerford, um, was the number of female prisoners that were that were detained by 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 the by the by the provisional government and later the government of the Irish Free State. Um, I have a figure here of. 680 women imprisoned during the war in total. Now, that's in total. There weren't 680 women in prison at one time. Okay, I think that's the most that were in prison at one time was 300. But there was a total of 680 women um, in prison. So this compared with a total of 17 women imprisoned during the Anglo-Irish War or during the War of Independence. Um, and I've talked about the Women's Prisoners Defence League. Um, they they were formed to you know campaign for you know better better conditions, better you know better access to to prisoners, families, or whatever, and um, to be to be to be allowed to visit their prisoners. Um, there was a protest rally organised by the Defence League in November 1922, um, and the crowd was shot at by 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 government forces. Um, 14 were injured by directly by the gunshots, and another 100 sustained minor injuries. Um, the imprisonment of both male and female um, prisoners continued actually after the Civil War had formed uh, had had been declared over um, in May 1923. Um, it wasn't until the end of 1924, even into 1925, <clears throat> that a lot of those who had been arrested as part of um, Round up, or you know, arrested as suspected um, Republican fighters or Republican sympathizers, or had been in contravention of you know public safety uh, resolutions or or other um, legal instruments that had been that had been introduced. And um, it wasn't until 1924, even into 1925, that a lot of these were released um, from jail. And um, I think a lot of a lot of the treatment of how prisoners were treated, that kind of went um, a long way to souring relations between <clears throat> the government of the Irish Free State and the population. And I think that that had for 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 many many years, um, there there are um, there are histories written um, about about the the history of you know Irish prisons, and there are documents um, in various archives um that detail the kind of the, the how prisoners were treated 
Um, and it's not, it's not a pleasant, it's not pleasant reading. So, yeah. Can you tell us about the executions that transpired during the Irish Civil War? Yeah. Who were, who were so, the victims, perpetrators, and agents? Yeah. So, so what, I, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to combine a couple of things. Um, <clears throat> so I, I mentioned in the, in the last section there where, you know, Prisoner treatment was 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 one of the two highly controversial topics. The second and probably the most controversial topic um, of the Irish Civil War concerns the policy of executions um, undertaken by the provisional government first, um, and then from the sixth of December, nineteen twenty-two, the government of the Irish Free State. The Irish Free State was born on the sixth of December, nineteen twenty-two, and sprung out of the the the, the treaty settlement okay, the treaty settlement um the Irish free state was 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 the was was the creation of the treaty settlement um so the first six months of the civil war saw a huge amount of violence it wasn't directed just towards the provisional government forces the what's known what was known as the national army had the national army was the the army of the provisional government but also against any attempts by the government and the national army to kind of you know restore law and order and um, following the sudden deaths of arthur griffith and michael collins in august 1922 griffith died of a brain hemorrhage on 12th of august 1922 and 10 days later collins was touring um his native his native west cork um and he was shot dead he was assassinated um at a little place called them the blah um which is i don't know how far how many miles is the west of the city? I can't I can't think of no exactly. Um it's it's not far. It's not far from, from, from where I'm city, relatively speaking. But the deaths of Griffith and Collins were a shock not to just the members of the provisional government, but also to you know their comrades in the army, especially Collins. Um because Collins was also the head of the IRB. He was the head of the, the Fenian movement at this time. Um, and his, you know, the IRB was a kind of a, an insidious network of uh, people that were sworn loyalty to the Republic um, or to a Republic, not necessarily the Republic of 1916, but to an Irish Republic. Um, but they were also fiercely loyal to Collins. Um, and his, Collins' death um, shocked them. And we all naturally enough, there were, um, there were, you know, I, there, there was anger, there was, you know, talks of recrimination, talks of, you know, basically, you know, shooting every Republican um, soldier or and Republican leader um, on site. And this kind of, this attitude, this undercurrent of anger, this undercurrent of, reprisal killings um wasn't stamped out entirely by either the provisional government or after the government of the Irish Free State. They harnessed this anger, they harnessed this fury at the death of Griffith and but most especially at the death of Collins, um, to kind of to further their own to further their own um agendas. So in September 1922, a resolution of Doyle Aaron, which had little or no legal basis, um, was passed, which set up courts martial and introduced 
stiff penalties for people found to be breaking this resolution, which included the death penalty. Um, we discussed Erskine Schindler's earlier on. Childers were the first to follow, follow with this of this new resolution. Now, this was in the formal legal sphere. Unofficially, the new army and police forces carried out several reprisals against Republicans through the Criminal Investigation Department headquartered at Oriel House in Dublin. Oriel House quickly acquired a reputation for brutality and summary killings of Republicans. Members of the, of the Criminal Investigation Department were involved in several gruesome killings in the Dublin area, including the extrajudicial, extrajudicial killings of three members of the youth wing of the Republican movement, whose bodies were found in the townland of the Red, of Red Cow, near Clondalkin, southwest of Dublin city centre, in October 1922. So the reaction of Republicans to this increase in arrests and increase in extrajudicial killing was to order a death sentence on those who had voted for controversial resolution in September 1922. The executions policy introduced by this resolution resulted in 14 killings, particularly in counties Kerry and Dublin in November 1922, and Erskine Childers was one of these 14. Um, yeah, so that's moving on. Um, so, so there's reprisal, a counter-reprisal. There's execution and there's counter-reprisal. The day after the Irish Free State comes into being, on the 7th of December 1922, TDs Sean Hales and Parig O'Malia were shot outside the Ormond Hotel in Dublin. Hales was killed and O'Malia survived. The following morning, early the following morning, on the 8th of December 1922, on page 67 of my book, there is a memorial poster for Rory O'Connor, Dick Barris, Liam Mellows, and Joseph McKelvey. These four men were dragged through their cells and executed in Mountjoy Jail early in the morning of 8th of December 1922. And these are the these are the first reprisal killings by the Free State government in the history of the Irish Free State. Um, over the next six weeks, 43 executions were done in nine locations across the country. The policy did have a noticeable effect on the morale of Republican fighters, but it also had longer-term effects. The memory of those executed continues to be commemorated and honoured to this day. Um, a friend of mine um, is, you know, he's he does he does a lot of he does a lot of um, historical talks. And he does a lot of historic. He does a lot of work with with families um, of these people. Um, so he's he, he he's well in tune with and still. Over a hundred years later, there is still a feeling of regret and, to an extent, bitterness about these about these killings. Um, now, aside from the policy of executions, there was also um, a hugely controversial aspect of the civil war, particularly in counties Cork, but most especially in County Kerry. County Kerry and County Cork are next door to each other in the southwest corner of Ireland. Um, we share a lot in common. We share a lot of differences, but during the Civil War, um, this was kind of the the hotbed of Republican activity. The 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 highest concentration of Republicans fighters outside of Dublin was in Counties Cork and County Kerry, and um, it was called the Munster Republic for you know a number of months in 1922, 1923. Um, now. 
so I, I'll I'll just I'll, I'll just digress a small bit, and I I want to talk about this character. Um, you probably have probably going to ask me to talk about him, but I'll talk about him now. Um, Paddy O'Daly. Yes, Paddy O'Daly was okay. He was he was born in Dublin. His father was a member of the Dublin Metropolitan Police, which was the the police force of Dublin that was um that was ran by the British state in Ireland. Um, O'Daly, after completing schooling, he was apprenticed to a carpenter. So he was a he was a carpenter by trade, and he worked in County Galway. He worked in Tifton. He worked in Tuam. Um, and while in Galway, he joined the Irish Volunteers, and he also joined the Republican Boy Scouts, the Fianna Air. And in July 1914, he was part of the Volunteer Company that um, took part in the host gun running. In at the Easter Rising, he was his his unit or the unit the unit of the volunteers that he was part of. Um, they led a volunteer party to raid the magazine fort in the Phoenix Park in Dublin. Um, and he was also he also saw action in the four courts. He was arrested. He was sent to prison in Wales. Um, he he also spent time in jail in Liverpool. Um, he was released in 1916. He came back to Dublin and he was. He was active in reorganizing the volunteers in in Dublin. Um, he was arrested again in 1919, and after his release, he was approached by Michael Collins to head up or to 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 become part of a counterintelligence unit of the Dublin Volunteers, or later the Dublin IRA. Um, and this was colloquially 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 known as the Squad. Their mission was to assassinate members of the Dublin Metropolitan Police Political Division. These were known as G-Men, um, and these were assassinated on regular intervals um, during 1920 and 1921. Um, sometime in 1920, O'Daly assumed control of this unit. They were now dubbed the 12 Apostles. They were 12. Um, they were fiercely loyal to Collins, and they carried out executions and reprisal killings on behalf of Collins during the War of Independence in Dublin. And their most spectacular success came on the 21st of November, 1920. 14 suspected British Secret Service agents were shot dead in their homes around the city. Um, this became known as Bloody Sunday. Um, O'Daly was arrested in the aftermath of Bloody Sunday. He was he was held in several locations in Dublin. He was held in um, Ballykinler Camp in County Down. But he was released in March 1921. Um, he took... Like the rest of the twelve apostles, like the rest of the squad, O'Daly um, took part. Or, um, O'Daly supported the treaty. Um, he and his his units, which were called the Dublin Guard, and um, they formed the nucleus of an expanded national army force in the capital in nineteen twenty in early nineteen twenty two. On the first of February that year, they took control of Beggars Bush Barracks. There were forty six officers and men of the Dublin Guards. This later swells to over 500. Um, in early August of that year, 500 members of the Dublin Guards were part of a National Army force that were landed by sea at Phoenix County Kerry as part of a seaborne invasion of the Munster Republic um, by the National Army. Um, and it's in Kerry that O'Daly, his, his reputation is, um, to this day, is... is is seen as um, divisive. So O'Daly, O'Daly, you know, is part of the Dublin Guard. Okay, he's in command of the Dublin Guard. Um, 
he, okay, to to put it bluntly, they're quite they're ruthless in their in their killing of Republican soldiers, in their treatment of Republican prisoners, captured captured Republican soldiers. Okay, they 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 mistreat them, they kill men on the point of surrender, and they summer summer. Yeah, I can't say it. Summer summer. No, I can't say. They execute um, without without trial. They execute captured fighters without without you know court martialing or anything like that. Um, O'Daly is appointed general officer commanding the National Army in Kerry in January 1923. It's over the next six months. That is probably the most controversial part of the entire civil war, um, and it takes place in County Kerry. Okay. Um, O'Daly approves this shortly after he's appointed general, general general officer commanding. There is a policy of employing captured Republican soldiers to clear obstructions from roads. So trees fall, and um, if there's roads that had landmines planted in them, um, Repu- captured Republican prisoners were taken out of the barracks and ordered and put to work clearing these obstructions. Um, in on the 6th of March, 1923, five National Army soldiers are killed by a mine explosion at a place called Nakhlegoshtel in North Kerry. Um, within several days, 17 Republican prisoners are killed as a result of mine explosions at places like Bally Seedy Wood, Caldas Bridge near Killarney, and Carsaibine. The Bally Seedy um, explosion is probably the most controversial of the whole time or the whole period of the war of independence or the civil war I should say excuse me of the of the civil war um prisoners are tied around a tra- what's called a trap mine or a booby trap landmine and the mine is detonated all bar one of the prisoners are killed the sole survivor manages to crawl to safety manages to you know crawl to a nearby house suffering from you know multiple multiple injuries he later testifies that the National Army soldiers went around to each body that was, you know, that wasn't his, uh, each of his remaining colleagues, and shot them in the head to make sure they were dead. Um, so this reports of this, you know, massacre, for want of a better phrase, reports of this massacre are carried in the newspapers um, over the coming days and weeks, and they're you know, the memory of this, the memory of this, of, of this atrocity, is, is is strong still, in 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 Kerry. Um, O'Daly, as a commander, um, he's subject to a court mar or court of inquiry. He's exonerated. Um, he, later that year, he's accused of physically and sexually assaulting two women in Kidmere, and there is still no prosecution. Um. He resigns from the army in 1924. He rejoins the army again during the Second World War. He's he's um he's he serves as the captain in the construction corps, and he leaves the army again at the end of the war, and he returns to Dublin and he dies in Dublin in 1957. But there is a so the the execution policy and the policy of you know reprisal killings, especially in Kerry, is probably the most controversial aspect of the Irish Civil. What does your research teach us about the emergence and evolution of the Sinn Féin organization? So, yeah. So, 
so very quickly, because I know time is time is short. Sinn Féin as a movement is Sinn Féin as a movement is founded officially in 1905. There are at the turn of the 20th century, there are a, a plethora of organizations that kind of grow out of um anti-imperialist movements that kind of grow out of protest movements against the visit of Queen Victoria to Dublin in 1900, that um and Queen Victoria's successor, King Edward. Uh, visits Dublin in 1903, and there was a whole, there was a, a number of ad hoc groups are formed to protest these visits. Um, some of these groups disappear. Some of them kind of merge together to form bigger groups. Um, in 1905, Sinn Féin is founded by a merger of a, a number of these groups together. Um, Arthur Griffith is the the guiding, um, you know, he's the guiding light of Sinn Féin. Um, at the time. Griffith is a journalist by trade. Uh, he's also a printer, but he's he's he is kind of the, the intellectual um driving force. Many of those who you know joined Sinn Fein after nineteen oh five, who joined Sinn Fein in the second iteration of Sinn Fein after nineteen seventeen, they credit Griffith with being, you know, their their sensei, their guiding light, um a, a, as it were. Um so Sinn Féin from 1905 up to the outbreak of the First World War, it fluctuates in terms of support. It's it's up, it's down. Um, there are you know certain times it's it's it, it, it's incredibly popular and it's seen as a threat to the constitutional nationalist movement. And then at other times it's completely moribund. Um, by by the outbreak of the First World War, it's completely moribund. Um, it's been it's been kind of cast aside in the. In this kind of you know, in the in the rush to the volunteer movement, in the in the rush to you know, you know, the outbreak of the First World War, polarizing different parts of of, of polarizing different 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 populations in Ireland, um, but its notoriety and its fame come from the mislabeling of the Easter Rising in 1916. The authorities and to and to an extent, solve the newspapers, some of the major newspapers in Ireland mislabeled the Easter Rising as the Sinn Féin Rebellion. Now, Sinn Féin did play a part. Um, members of Sinn Féin did play a part in the rebellion. But Sinn Féin as a movement were not directly involved. However, it's this connection by the authorities, by organs of union, by newspapers that are you know, predominantly you know, carrying a unionist message, um, newspapers that are predominantly carrying a constitutional nationalist message, it is their identification or their labelling of the Easter Rising as a Sinn Féin rebellion that causes, you know, the the Sinn Féin movement to 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 regrow um in the year after 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 the Easter Rising. So by by nineteen seventeen, by October nineteen seventeen, there is there are two conventions that take place on successive days in Dublin. And um, one is a convention of the Irish Volunteers, and one is a convention of Sinn Féin. Pretty much between the two conventions, Sinn Féin and the Volunteers merge into the wider Sinn Féin movement that wins seats, that sweeps aside the Irish Parliamentary Party in 1918, and that basically runs the Doyle government um, from 1919 to 21. In the election of 1921, um, they hold elections in 1921, and there are a number of other parties take seats in the Doyle as well. But Sinn Féin is still the most, the, 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 
the, the predominant party. Sinn Féin splits over the treaty. Sinn Féin splits um, following the treaty voting on the 7th of December 1922. So Sinn Féin splits into Sinn Féin and uh, pro-treaty and anti-treaty Sinn Féin. There is an election in June 1922, um, shortly before the outbreak of the Civil War, um, and there is a pact arrived at where by people vote for a slate of candidates um, based on based on percentages. So they vote for a slate of pro-treaty candidates and anti-treaty Sinn Féin candidates. Um, this is a hugely controversial election. Um, the the the, the pro-treaty side shows as are taken and and run with it as you know having showing legit giving legitimacy to the pro to the. To the to the prosecution of the civil war, to the to conduct of the civil war on the on the provisional government part, the anti-treaty side, the anti-treaty Sinn Féin rejected out of hand, and they say it is not representative of the majority of feeling in in the in the in the, in the country. Um, after the after the with the outbreak of the civil war, okay, pro-treaty Sinn Féin basically is, you know, and the Dáil. Um, pro-treaty Sinn Féin, Labour, and a number of smaller parties constitute the Dáil. Um, Anti-treaty Sinn Féin abstains. They form their own Republican government headed by Eamon de Valera. Um, and this kind of dual government continues up to 1926. It actually continues after 1926 as well. But in 1926, the anti-treaty Sinn Féin splits again. Um, and you have Sinn Féin, basically the the doctrinaire Republicans, the diehard Republicans stay with Sinn Féin. The more moderate Republicans um, leave Sinn Féin and they follow Eamon de Valera in founding Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil, um, to this day, is one of the major parties in in, in Irish political life. Um, the pro-treaty Sinn Féin... Um, m- m- ...transforms itself into a party called Common Avail. Um, and they win the general election in 1923 after the Civil War, and they govern the Irish Free State from 1923 to 1932, when Fianna Fáil takes over, uh, wins the election on seats, coming again out of power. Um, and Fianna Fáil basically is a you know, hegemony in Irish political life from 1932 up to quite recently. Um, coming again then merges with a number of other organisations in 1933 to form Fine Between them, Fine Fáil and Fine Gael win up to the general election of 2020 in Ireland. Fine Fáil and Fine Gael won yeah, the majority of seats in each Dáil election um, from 1932 up to 2020. Um, and in 2020, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael formed a historic coalition that we still have to this day. Um, the current poll numbers suggest that um, Sinn Féin, not the Sinn Féin of 1926, but Sinn Féin, um, which is a kind of a, it goes through several changes and iterations from the 20s through to the 1950s through to the 1960s um, into the 70s with the, the whole violence in Northern Ireland. And you know, the current iteration of Sinn Féin um, can trace some of its lineage back to back to 1922, 23, but I would argue not a lot. So the most um, I, I I think I, I think we'll actually leave it here. Um, I think the most 
Um, I can't think of the word now. The, 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 the strongest legacy of the Civil War is two. Number one is a silence on the on the part of the participants of the Civil War. Um, people didn't talk about it. It was something that wasn't talked about. Um, a friend of mine, Shiva Aiken, has written a great book called Spiritual Wounds about the, the silences um, emerging from the Civil War and how these were manifested down into the, you know, almost the present day. Um, also, um, okay, second legacy is political, as I've explained. Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael trace their lineage back to the Sinn Féin party of 1917 to, to, to 23 uh, or 22. Um, and I think if we were to if we were to wrap on, on one final message, I think understanding what went on is always a key towards reconciliation and you know proper commemoration of of an event. So I think by understanding what went on um in the in the Civil War and maybe not necessarily agreeing with everything that went on in the Civil War, but understanding and having a degree of empathy with um, what went on in the in the Civil War. I think that is, I think that is the key, and opening up, um, opening up documents, opening up archives, opening up different um, and even archives of the mind. You know, people people still. You know, okay, there are very few participants of the Civil War alive, if any, um, but their direct descendants are still with us. And opening up their um opening up their minds, opening up their hearts, opening up their memories, uh, is I, I think is 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 key to 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 still getting to grips with the Civil War um a hundred years later. As we bring today's dialogue to a close can you tell us about your current research? What have you been working on recently? Where has your time gone since completing? Yeah, this so, so I, I think as I, as I was explaining um, before we were recording, um, I'm in the final throes of my PhD thesis, my PhD research um, and writing, um, and I have. Okay, I'm 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 just going to throw this out there, and people are people are free to to to, to accept it or reject it, whichever way they would. Um, but having combining the research I did for this book and my PhD research, I am of the firm belief that there are three civil wars in Ireland over the period 18, 1889 to nineteen twenty three. And I'll explain this just very, very briefly. Yeah. 1890 to 1891, you have what's called the Parnell Split, where the Irish nationalist movement, which was, you know, hegemonic at the time, um, split, split virulently. Um, you have people like, you know, it's, it's immortalized in, in, in short stories from, from people like James Joyce. And James Joyce is a short story called Ivy Day and the Committee Group. Where people are still fighting the parallel split twenty years later. Uh -huh. uh, people are still fighting the parallel the, the, the Irish Civil War hundred years later. So you know the, the power of the power of repressed uh, power of repressed memory. Um, secondly, I think was the Civil War that nearly was in 1914, 1940, 
with the formation of the Volunteer Forces in Ulster and the Irish Volunteer Force. Um, in, 90, in the summer of 1914, just prior to the outbreak of the First World War, um, there is a sense that Ireland will be at civil war within weeks because of the question of um, should the province of Ulster, all of it, which is nine counties, part of it, which is six counties, or part of it, which is two or three counties, be part of a home rule Ireland. And I'm not going to explain that anymore. People are free. People are free to to to, to look that up um, in various places um, and to read to read about it. But there is, you know, two armed paramilitary forces on the island of Ireland in 1914, and they they are very very close to 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 to, to war, um, which would be another civil war. And then finally, you have the civil war of of 1922 to 23. So that is that's my my take on it and people are feel free to, to accept it or reject it whichever way they whichever way they which, whichever way they choose but I'd be very happy to 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 debate that with the people um, in the coming years thank you I'm unbelievably grateful for your generous erudite and thoughtful answers in all the questions we discussed in the course of our dialogue together thank you very much Tuari thank you very much for allowing me the time um, I think I've gone way over weight, way over my arthritis, my arthritis, or my, my self-imposed time. But I think I hope that I hope that people who listen to this um, take something from it. Anyway, at least as we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am your host on the New Books in History podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been blessed to be in dialogue with John O'Donovan. He is head tutor at the School of History at University College Cork. We have been discussing his newly published book, An Introduction to the Irish Civil War, published in Dublin, Ireland, by Mercier Press 2022. Thank you wholeheartedly.